Malachi. It's page 801 if you're using a red pew Bible. Uh, or probably the easier way to find it is just to uh, find the very end of the Old Testament. This is the last book in the Old Testament. It's the last minor prophet. So this will be the end of the series on the minor prophets who are minor, not because of their unimportant message, but because of their size. These are shorter books. And Malachi would be the last uh, would be the last spoken word from God for uh, for about four hundred years, right? As soon as Malachi is done speaking, there no no prophet speaks until John the Baptist in the New Testament. So uh, Malachi is, in a sense, the Lord's last word for a very long time. And so we're gonna. Do an overview of his message today. We certainly won't do it justice. We won't hit all of the important things, but hopefully you'll have a, a sense of what this book that's, that few of us probably ever read, um, what this book says, not only to the people in the Old Testament, but to us on the other side of Jesus as well. Let's pray. Father, we need your, your grace. Holy Spirit, we need you to come, and we need you to open our eyes. Help us to hear the message of Malachi. Help us to apply it. Help me to apply it to my own life. And Lord, we would also ask that you would help us to see Jesus, who is in the shadows here, but is here all the same. Help us to identify. Lord, convict us of where we have faltered and failed and then drive us to the cross. For that is our only hope. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a a young friend who when he was a teenager... He intentionally ignored pretty much everything his mom ever said to him. Now, I realize that's not any of you. You've never done that to your mother. But for this guy, uh, when his mom would say, for instance, Johnny, I need you to take out the trash, he would just ignore her. And then she would say, Johnny, did you hear me? What? I need you to take out the trash. Okay. All right. Um, again, nobody here has probably ever done that, right? You don't do that to your husband. You don't do that to your wife. You certainly don't do that to your parents, right? Um, is there something wrong with my friend's ears, right? Is there something wrong with his hearing? Is he, is he dull of hearing? Is he unable to hear what his mom's telling him? No. But there is something wrong with his heart, For whatever reason, he is cold in his heart toward her, and so she won't listen to what uh, he won't listen to what she's saying, right? And that's actually the situation that Malachi finds the people of God in, right? The exile is over. When we come to Malachi, now if you were with us at the very beginning of this series when we started Hosea, this is about 300 years later. So we've covered about 300 years in just these 12 books. 
and a lot of, thi- a lot of things have changed. Um, but Malachi's situation is the exile is over. The people have, are back. Uh, the walls of Jerusalem have been restored. Even the temple has been rebuilt. And so the people are offering sacrifices again. But something's missing, right? The people are, are in the land and they've, they're worshiping the Lord, but they're going through the motions. Their hearts are actually cold toward the Lord. And the reason is, it's probably because they're disappointed, right? All the other prophets spoke of a glorious day and how things were going to be better and how the, the Lord himself was going to return and he was going to punish all of their enemies and they were going to be rich and it was going to be awesome. Except that none of that happened. And so, just like you and just like me, when, when what you expect to happen doesn't happen, you get disappointed. And when that happens to you repeatedly, you just give up, right? You, you can only bear with the disappointment for so long. Now, in their case, God had made those promises, but they misunderstood the promises. They expected something totally different than what the Lord was bringing, but the disappointment was real. And they had been disappointed for so long that they had just given up. And so... The situation then in Malachi's day is that you have people who are apathetic, right? Uh, you, know what, you know what apathy is? Ah, without pathos emotion. They were without feeling, right? The, the apathy is the, uh, is the so what, right? Who cares? Who cares what the Lord says? I'm going to do what I've got to do, and I'm going to get through today, and that will be that, right? And so if that's where you are today, right, if you are... If you are cold in your heart, if you are apathetic, then Malachi has a word for you. And actually, Malachi has a word for all of us because all of us find ourselves at different points uh, in this situation, right? Where because of disappointment, because of our own disobedience, um, we're cold towards the Lord. And so Malachi addresses that. And here's what he says. He says, the only cure for spiritual apathy is turning to the Lord for cleansing, right? The only cure for spiritual apathy is turning to the Lord for cleaning. But before you can be clean, you have to realize how dirty you are. And so Malachi, his book is actually structured in in six arguments, right? It's as if the Lord sits down at the table with his people and he says something and then they respond with a question and then he responds back to them to prove his point. And that happens six times in Malachi. And actually, those are all parallel to each other. So there are three areas that Malachi addresses, right? There, and we're going to look at these as kind of a test. So a cold heart towards the Lord is revealed first in our relationship to others, second in begrudging worship, and third in our relationship or our knowledge of the Lord, Right? Those are the three areas that Malachi really addresses. Our relationship to others reveal our coldness to the Lord. Our begrudging worship can reveal our coldness to the Lord. And uh, our lack of knowledge of who he is, our lack of knowing him, reveals our cold-heartedness towards the Lord. So uh, as we go through these, we need to be asking ourselves this question. Are you cold-hearted? Are you apathetic to what God is doing, to who God is like the people in Malachi's day. 
And the first one that we're going to point out, right, is our, in our relationships to others. One of the arguments that Malachi lodges, that God lodges against his people, is that they were abusing marriage. So turn to chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. And it says this, Malachi 2.10, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. Well, let's stop right there. The first way that these people were abusing marriage is that they, now that they were back in the land and there were lots of people around them who didn't worship the God of the Bible, they were marrying people who worshipped other gods. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you and me, right? Because we live in an enlightened age where um, everybody gets to choose their own God. So, so what? Now, if my wife wants to worship in this way, uh, I will worship in this way, and you know what? We just won't talk about it. First of all, that, does that really work? Um, but second, it, that, that, that views religion like it's kind of a hobby, right? Well, she plays tennis, and I play golf. And we each have our own hobbies, right? Like, do you see how, do you see how the people in Malachi's day were almost treating religion as if it was a hobby? Like, well, it doesn't matter whether you worship the Lord or not. I'll marry you because you're good-looking or because you've got lots of money, or whatever. But God says, no, no, no. When you treat the marriage covenant that way, it actually reveals a lot about how you treat me. Right? Because religion is not a hobby. Religion is actually where your soul is anchored. Right? Religion defines the rest of your life, every other sphere that you exist in. Okay? And so... If my soul is anchored to the God of the Bible, but my wife's soul is anchored to something else, can you see how that's going to cause conflict? And can you see how, how it doesn't, A, doesn't make for a very strong marriage, but B, also neglects the Lord who owns the whole house, right? So that was, a, that was abuse of marriage number one. Abuse of marriage number two, verse 13 This second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So the second way they were abusing marriage was they were, right, husbands were divorcing their wives out of contempt. Right, so this would be this would be the no fault divorce of our day, basically saying, Hey, you know what? We don't love each other anymore. So we're just gonna we're just gonna divorce, we're gonna break up. Right? In fact, you can even see that in the language of the culture, that we treat marriage lightly 
Because what used to be called divorce is now just called a breakup, right? As if a, as if a boyfriend and girlfriend just can't get along anymore, so they're going to break up. Well, marriage is not meant to be that impermanent, right? Marriage is meant to be, um, well, marriage is meant to be till death do us part. And what these people were doing, right, what it appears that they were doing is they were saying, I don't love my wife anymore. She's not pretty. I don't like her. She's gotten too old. And so they were divorcing out of convenience. And God says, when you do that, you abuse marriage. And when you abuse marriage, you reveal that you don't think much of me. Right? Um, why is that? Why would God, why does God take marriage so seriously? God takes marriage seriously because. He is the faithful husband, right? He is the one. He is the one who sticks. And so, when we violate marriage, we are we are showing that we don't have much concern for the God of the covenant, for the God who loves marriage. So that's one way that they were abusing their relationships to others in the, their abuse of marriage. But then there's a second way, right? And we see this in two seventeen. This is the this is another argument God has with his people. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will set as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old. And as in former years, and we'll deal with all of those passages more in a bit. Verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. So the people were asking, where is God? Right, All these people are abusing each other. There's a lot of injustice. Things aren't going right. You've got adulterers. You've got murderers. You've got people who are stealing. You've got people who are lying, perverting justice, abusing the weak and the powerless. Does God not care? Is God going to do something? We think he's gone. He must give approval. He must be giving his approval to the people who do, do evil. And God says, no, I will come. And I will, will deal with with these situations, right? And so this is, this is how I would apply these two arguments, and it's this way. True religion extends beyond Sunday morning worship. Put another way, the way that you treat others on the horizontal plane, right, has a lot to say about your heart towards God. The way that you treat others has a lot to say about your heart towards God, right? What does John say in 1 John 4.20? If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so God's first set of arguments against his people is, you're abusing each other. And when you abuse each other, you reveal that your heart is cold towards me. When you don't understand marriage, when you put up with adultery, when you put up with lying, when you put up with abuse, when you put up with injustice, you are revealing that your heart is cold towards me, that you do not understand me. But then he goes and has another couple of arguments. And this one deals with our worship, with our begrudging worship. The first thing we see is this, that the people were offering lame sacrifices. Go to chapter 1, verse 6. God begins another argument. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. So what was happening, right, is the people were supposed to bring, the law says that the people were supposed to bring a perfect sacrifice before the Lord, right? No blemish, no spot, perfect. But instead, what the people were doing is they were bringing their leftovers, right? They were vowing one thing and yet bringing the blind animal or the lame animal, right? They were, they were bringing imperfect sacrifices before the Lord. And God says, when you do that, you're showing me exactly what you think of me. When you bring me, when you bring me the sick and the lame and the dying instead of, the firstborn and the perfect, you show just how little you regard my love for you, that you actually despise my name. Verse 11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place, uh, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. You say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. But their worship was also affected. Not only were they bringing lame sacrifices, they were also bringing lame gifts, right? Their giving was lame. Chapter 3, verse 6, God's fifth argument, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? 
in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, and there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. So not only were the people not bringing a good sacrifice, but they also were failing to give in the way that they should have, right? The tenth, or the tithe, that's a Hebrew word for tenth, right? They were called in the law to give a tenth of their annual income, right? That was their offering to the temple. It kept the temple running, it kept the priests fed, and it kept everybody happy. But what these people were saying was, we just don't have enough. We've got drought. Uh, insects are killing the crops. We're just not bringing in enough. You know what? We just can't bring in the full amount. And God says, you're robbing me. Right? The reason you can't, uh, it's not that you can't bring in the full amount. You won't. Right? Because what does God say? He says, put me to the test. Bring me what you're supposed to bring me. Bring your tithe into the storehouse and just see. See if I won't pour out blessing on you. See if I won't rain down blessing so that you will have no need. All these needs that you think that you have that you don't have enough of to give out of, your priorities are in the wrong place. Give, give to me your best and your first and I will give you all that you need to have. And that principle still remains true in the New Testament, right? There are some who would probably say uh, that tithing no longer exists in the New Testament because, well, we don't see it in the New Testament, right? Um, No, what you actually see in the New Testament is more generous than a tenth, right? You see God, you see believers, and you see Jesus himself going beyond a tenth um, and giving generously, even sacrificially to their own hurt, uh, sacrifices. We don't sacrifice anymore. We don't bring animal sacrifices anymore. But what does Paul say that our sacrifice is? Ourselves, our bodies, right? Romans 12:1. You are living sacrifices. Present yourself as a living sacrifice on God's altar. This is your holy and acceptable act of worship. And so here's the way that I would apply this set of messages. God does not want our leftovers. God does not want your leftovers. He does not want what comes at the end. He wants your first and he wants your best. Right? That is, that is what he deserves. That is what he demands. And yet, so many of us put ourselves in a position where we are unable to give God our first and our best. Even something as simple as staying up really late on Saturday night so that you're blitzed on Sunday morning. Right? Can you bring God your first and your best? Can you give him the honor due his name? The people in Malachi's day were guilty. Right? 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says that joyful... joyful uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 says that our giving is to be joyful, that it is not done under compulsion, and that it is sacrificial. Right? The people uh, that Paul is talking about from Macedonia were poor, and yet they were giving out of their poverty. Right? They were feeling the hurt, and they gave anyway. Is that how we view giving? Is that how we worship? 
the Lord. And then lastly, a cold heart towards the Lord is revealed in our knowledge of Him. And this is really the frame of the whole book. Go to chapter 1, verse 2. The first way our knowledge is deficient is that we, actually, we, we doubt, we do not grasp God's love for us. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now right there you see the tension that characterizes the rest of the book, right? God is saying, I have loved you, and yet his people are like, we don't see it. I don't think it's real. We don't see any proof, Lord, that you love us. And so they're asking the question, how? Right? Look at our condition. Look at our circumstances. How can you say, Lord, that you love us? And here's how God answers. He says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, that is, your forefather, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins... The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes will see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now that that answer to their question may sound really strange if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. God is pointing his people back to Genesis and and to twin brothers named Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob, right, they share the same mother, they share the same father, they even share the same womb. And yet God, in Genesis, chooses Jacob, and he rejects Esau. And Paul will say in Romans 9, before either one of them had a chance to do good or evil, they had no record, right? It wasn't like Esau was a really nasty guy. And God said, nah, I don't want Esau, I want Jacob. He's the better of the two. In fact, Jacob is a lying cheat. That's who Jacob is in Genesis. And God says, this is my man. My promise goes with this one, right? What does that tell you about God's love? It tells you that it has nothing to do with you and all to do with him. That when God chooses, he chooses out of his own gracious will, out of his own gracious love, and he doesn't give us a whole lot of explanation. In fact, sometimes it defies explanation. Because if you were to look at the history of Jacob's sons and daughters, which they're the ones that Malachi is talking to, you would see that they have done nothing to deserve or merit God's love. In fact, they've done everything to spurn it. And God says, yet I am still for you. I've cast Esau off. I've destroyed his country. You're back in yours. I still love you. You are still mine. And then he closes out the book with the sixth argument, the final argument. Chapter 3, verse 13. Not only do we have a hard time grasping his love, but we also have a hard time walking in fear before him. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? They've gotten cynical, right? They're so tired of being disappointed that they're just like, 
you know what? It's useless to serve God. It's useless to walk before him. I feel like we're always in mourning and I'm tired of it. And God says, you weary me with words like this. But then see how some people responded. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention. So it's not the Lord. The Lord, he hears the voices of the cynics, but he also hears the prayers of the righteous, of the humble. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will, not leave, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name... The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You will go out leaping like calves released from the stall, and you will tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So God, he's already made a distinction between his people and those who are not his people. Now he makes a distinction even between those who, who are his people. And he says, for the, for the arrogant and wicked who spurn my name... You will be rejected. But for those who, are, who humble themselves and return to me, you will receive the son of righteousness. Right? The son of righteousness will come and dispel the darkness. You will be released from the stall. Right? You will be set free. So those who are humble and respond to me, who fear me, I will favor on the last day. So I don't know about you, but when I look at those three areas, when I hear those six messages, I am not left with a safe place. Right? I have spurned the Lord. I am cold towards the Lord in worship. I am cold towards the Lord in my relationships with you. And I even don't fully grasp the love of God or the fear of God. Could you say the same? Are you convicted by Malachi's message? Hear this word of hope in chapter 3. See what God will do for those who turn to him. 3.1 Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Alright, so the Lord is going to come. Right? You want to see the Lord? You want to hear from God? You're going to get to hear from Him. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. What I want you to see in there is this that the people God is speaking to are not destroyed. They are not wiped away, they are not burned up, they are cleansed. That God 
when he comes, will cleanse his people. Now, it's going to be painful, right? Because when metal is purified, how do, you, how do you purify metal? How do you get the impurities out of it? You melt it. You heat it up so much that it melts, and then all of the impurities float to the top, and you scoop it off and you throw it away. God says, that's how I'm going to deal with my people. That when you turn to me, when you come to me, I will purify you. I will make your offerings acceptable. I will make you acceptable before me. And that tells us two things. One, God is not indifferent to our cold-heartedness. He is not indifferent to our sins. But also this, that if we belong to him, God will clean the cold-heartedness out of us. He will purify us. It reminded me of a boy named Eustace. Eustace Scrub. If you don't know Eustace Scrub, you need to read the book The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. Eustace Scrub is a whiny, greedy, selfish boy. He's like me. And on this voyage, right, they're on this, they're on this ship and they're going from island to island and they, get, they stop at one particular island and Eustace finds a dragon's treasure hoard. Right, and because Eustace is who he is, he starts filling his pockets with the treasure, right? And then he sees this beautiful golden bracelet, and he slides it on his arm. And then he falls asleep. And when Eustace wakes up, he is a dragon. And the, and the golden band that kind of fit on his arm is now pinching his arm, and it hurts, and it burns, and he wants to get it off. Not only that, but now he can't go back to his friends, right? He's a dragon, And nobody wants to be a friend with a dragon. And so Eustace finally sees what it is that he really, his real identity, right? And so Eustace, now that he finally sees who he really is, begins to weep. And he begins to cry. And then Aslan, the great lion, shows up, right? He is the Jesus figure of the Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan shows up. And he leads Eustace to a garden on top of a mountain, And in the middle of that garden, there is a huge marble well with water bubbling up from below. And as soon as Eustace sees the water, he says, I knew that if I could just get in there, then the pain I felt in my arm would be gone, be washed away. And as he makes a move to get into the well, Aslan says, you must undress first. And Eustace goes, well, I'm a dragon. I don't have any clothes on. And then he realizes, oh, oh, I'm a dragon, and so like I'm a reptile, that means I can shed my skin. And so he takes his claws and he begins to scratch all of the scales off. And then he digs down and he starts getting the skin off. And so Eustace pulls off a layer of skin. And he sees it laying on the ground and he says, good, I'm glad that's done. And he starts to go into the water and then sees his reflection and realizes he's still got scales. He's still a dragon. And so he tries again. And he tries again. Three times in, Eustace realizes he can't clean himself. He can't undress himself. And so Aslan says, you will have to let me undress you. And Eustace describes what happens next. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. 
the only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than all the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. Has the lion dressed you in new clothes yet? Because only new clothes will do. You see, you're not made to be cold-hearted. You're not made to be apathetic to the Lord who made you. You're made to worship Him. You're made to glorify Him. You're made to delight in Him. And when we don't, we falter. And we're so much less than we were made to be. Malachi finishes his book with this in chapter 4, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The Old Testament finishes... The same way the New Testament begins. The same message. Repent. Turn. Right? When John the Baptist and Jesus begin their ministries in the New Testament, they say, repent and believe. Turn and trust. You need the Son of Righteousness. You need the healing in His wings. Turn and trust in Him today. Let's pray. Father, like every prophet before him, Malachi gives us a very hard word, a very convicting word. Lord, a word that is meant to expose us, to expose our cold-heartedness, to expose our apathy, and to grieve us so that we would turn to you, so that we realize we have been living a life that is so much less than what you would have us live. We realize that we are dragons and that we need you to undress us, to clean us, and clothe us again in your righteousness. Would you do that, Lord God? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.